there is a broad awareness. I think we found like 80% of consumers are aware that they're being manipulated, but I don't think that most people are aware the degree to which the manipulation is customized to them based off of their data footprint. This is Writers in Tech, a podcast where today's top content strategists, UX writers, and content designers share their well-kept industry secrets. Hello and welcome to Writers in Tech, a podcast brought to you by the UX Writing Hub, which is an online education platform for writers in tech. We have a weekly newsletter, we have a blog, and we also have a few courses on our website to check it out. Today, we have a very special guest, and we're going to talk with this guest about ethical design and dark patterns, and I have a huge honor to have him. Hey, Colin Gray, how are you? I'm doing really well. Looking forward to the conversation with you today. Looking forward as well. I've seen your name quote your, and your academic reports quoted in many, many places when I did my research about dark patterns, so it's a huge honor to have you here. No, it's my it's my pleasure. It's really great to see some of the work that our lab has been doing, getting out into the popular press, and also starting to impact discourses in the design and legal communities. Amazing. Can you tell me more about your work in the lab and what you've been researching in the last few years? Yeah, sure. So a lot of this work on dark patterns in particular um, began in 2015 and 2016. was able to get some funding from our National Science Foundation here in the United States to look more into this idea of dark patterns, which had been described by Harry Brignall, a UX practitioner and who has a PhD in cognitive science in 2010. The goals for Harry back in 2010 were really to just raise awareness within the design community. And so I wanted to look at how dark patterns might play out in the ethical discourses of academia and education. And so early on, our work was really simply trying to look at what were people calling dark patterns? What were they describing using that larger term? And then over time, we've started to get a a better sense of not only the discourses that surround dark patterns and the way that um, we can actually language certain aspects of design complexity and ethical complexity with that term, but also dig much more deeply into how dark patterns can illuminate ethical design responsibility from individual practitioners and how that contributes to sort of these uh, broader set of experiences, increasingly manipulative, increasingly addictive, increasingly coercive. And so we're continuing to do work to this day. I just had my lab meeting this morning to uh, map out some new projects where we're looking at describing ethical, the ethical character of design practice from many different angles, trying to understand why is it so difficult to understand what the right thing is. And then once you understand what the right thing is, perhaps, how can you actually choose to do the right thing within industry settings? So I really want to dive in this topic right now and talk about all those projects. But before that, can we step back and say, what lab is it and what team is working on this project right now? Yeah, so I lead the user experience pedagogy times practice lab here at Purdue University. I also lead our undergraduate and graduate programs in user experience design. Uh, we have uh, one of the first undergraduate programs in UX in the country. So uh, we have a really cool set of uh, students here at the undergrad and grad levels. And I normally have eight to 10 students working with me at any given time on a r- variety of projects relating to UX competence, uh, UX education and ethics and criticality. And so the dark patterns work certainly fits within that broader structure. Brilliant. Thank you for sharing that. And so what's next? Like what other projects and research are you planning to do related to dark patterns uh, that's on your plate these days in your lab? 
Yeah, so the funding for the original project uh, ran out a couple of years ago, but we've been working on a, a broader project looking at uh, ethical complexity in the practice of design and technology disciplines. And so we're about halfway through, a little over halfway through that project, and we've been trying to sort of characterize dark, dark patterns and ethical responsibility a little bit more broadly. I thought dark patterns was actually going to go away, and right as I stopped studying it directly, everything blew up and we started to get a lot of press attention and the legal community and the regulatory community in particular start, uh, started to take notice. So we have an award-winning paper that was just published at a large human computer direction conference, CHI, uh, just back in May, looking at the balancing act that you have to play between legal and regulatory perspectives and design perspectives. And how can we talk about those issues? And then once we can talk about them, how can we maybe figure out where there are tensions and opportunities um, together? So a lot of our work around dark patterns these days is focusing on really describing the historical arc of dark patterns so far, because it's been in the discourse for over a decade now, and it's actually had a really big impact on helping people become more aware of manipulative design practices. It's obviously seeped into the national and international press as well. Well, but also we're starting to see this notion of dark patterns, which was originally very narrowly defined for the UX community by Harry Brignall, now being taken up by legal and regulatory bodies as well as a way of talking about what kinds of tech experiences should we not have and which desirable futures should we actually search for? Fantastic. Okay, I have so many things to, to say right now. First of all, like, I wonder if dark patterns is something that started like 10 years. I remember that I've seen this video like, that was made like 20 years ago about the servers that send you like cassettes to your home every month and you have to like actively send them every month a letter just to, if you want to tell them to stop doing that. And I would consider even that, which is not a digital experience, to be like some kind of like the origins of dark patterns, right? Indeed. Yeah. And I mean, if you look at, I mean, I originally trained as a graphic designer. I originally thought I was going to go out and work in an ad agency. You know, there's a really good, there are really good advertising practices out there, but there's always been sort of the seedy underbelly of the ad industry where they've tried to use these sometimes very cheap tricks, sometimes very sophisticated tricks to get our intention, to get our money. And so, you know, the service you talked about, you know, Columbia House, I think in the United States, um, sold CDs back in the 90s. And they had this business model that really thrived on tripping you up so that you'd pay money that you weren't really intending to pay. And so certainly what we're seeing is a translation of some of those same tricks, along with a whole new kind of tricks in digital experiences that prey on our money, prey on our attention. And those, what gets really concerning when you get that translation to the digital space is that you can do mass customization much more cheaply and with a much higher level of sophistication. And in doing so, you can trip up many, many more people than you might be able to trip up in physically mediated experiences. Let's talk about like the landscape of you know the most common chip tricks, uh, dark patterns that we can find today. We have the confirmation, confirm shaming, right? I mean, so yeah, I mean, I think for your audience, confirm shaming is a really nice centerpiece because it really <laughs> relies upon this use of language to set the tone to set norms and to shame who don't do the things that you, the business thinks that they should do. Honestly, the, the consent experiences sort of more broadly are, are a real centerpiece of a dark pattern study right now because there's so much interest um, in, from the legal and regulatory side on data protection and privacy. And so, you know, you can look at confirm shaming, I think is a great entry into that space. You can also look at how language in 
by, by the way that you choose to twist words, by the way that you choose to maybe create false negatives, the way that you put items out of parallel, even though they should be in parallel, um, to just create these kinds of confusion uh, can be really profound. And I think one of the big challenges that we're facing sort of more broadly in relation to dark patterns right now is that I think everyone desires to have more control over their experience and for this, the system to speak honestly with us. But in fact, these are very com complicated systems. And so if you take even something like GDPR as a as sort of governance framework uh, for data protection, most consumers, even if they state that they're very interested in having experiences that allow them to have a choice, when they're given that choice, that choice is often very technical. And so you might end up ticking many, many different boxes to opt in or opt out of various kinds of, of data collection. And so in that process, to actually help people become fully aware of what's happening is overwhelming. And so I think that this is the challenge for user experience designers and copywriters alike at this stage is to really understand how do you take this very complex landscape? How do you boil it down in ways that consumers can actually take on and do it in ways that don't overly value the, the shareholder in the process as well? And so many of the other dark pattern types that we sort of see out there, Harry's work started with e-commerce primarily. But many of the mm -hmm. strategies are being used now to capture data and capture attention because those are the hot commodities, right? And so you can look at all the types that we've identified in our previous work and you know, new newer patterns that have emerged like confirmed shaming as examples of ways to just steal that attention, steal that time, or help you know, coerce or manipulate people into doing things that they wouldn't otherwise want to do. So you start talking about like uh, the fact that... Uh... This topic got some legal attention too. Like I read this article the other day about uh, California banning dark patterns. Is a kind of, uh, I guess, kind of like crazy thing that would probably define the legal for many other states and also countries when it comes to like legal, like the GDPR kind of defined the tone for many internet companies. So what's next for legal and dark patterns? Do you think should like companies should kind of pay more attention to it? like internal education, or what, what's the solutions here for humanity? Yeah, the solutions have to be multifaceted. And so I education is not, a, it's great for consumer awareness to sort of be there, and even for designer awareness to be there. But we know from our work and lots of other, you know, sort of parallel work, that just because somebody knows something doesn't mean that they change their actions as a result. So there's this privacy paradox that we've known about for some time, where people claim to be very interested in protecting their privacy and protecting their data, their actions say something quite different. Now, there are lots of reasons behind that. Some of it's just pure exhaustion. Some of it's that they don't actually care in the moment, they just want access to material. But what we do about these issues, I think, does require a, a orchestrated effort across industry players, including platforms, regulatory bodies and governmental bodies, and uh, consumer awareness and the abilities for consumers to act. And I think we're at a very exciting tipping point. There is a lot of regulatory interest, which I think in the United States, the, our Federal Trade Commission has hosted a workshop in April specifically on dark patterns. They're showing a lot of interest in finding new ways to regulate this space, especially for groups like uh, children and the elderly that are more impacted than even the average population. I think it is going to require consumer attention beyond just the popular press to help people become more aware that not only are they being manipulated, but they can 
choose in some ways which uh, kinds of services they wish to to use that may not use as many of these dark practices. It, it is going to require, I think, a concerted effort across all these spaces for for real change to happen. Because right now, the incentive systems are all swinging towards the inclusion of dark patterns, even if it produces consumer angst. They'll still use the products. They'll still engage with this project products, either because they have the ecosystem lock-in, like with, with Google or Amazon and, and the like, or because they maybe don't have a, enough awareness that there are alternatives in place. This is really interesting. Let's say, okay, so when accessibility, for example, of, of web uh, experience became uh, some kind of a necessary thing in the legal issue, so we had some kind of a business opportunity here that you had like startups like Accessibility or like different people that found like a business incentive to lead towards uh, accessibility products. So that's really helped humanity. Do you feel like we're going to have business incentives to create like products, workshop, education stuff, or anything that will help us to promote the idea of ethical technology and ethical design? I think it's a little bit early to say. I think optimistically, we can see some of the successes of this, the accessibility story sort of playing out in relation to dark patterns and manipulation as well. I think the challenge, and this is me speaking perhaps a little bit cynically, is that, one, we haven't actually solved the accessibility challenge for many, many digital products. Uh, there are companies that champion it. There are companies like Microsoft that have put a lot of money behind accessibility, but it's still very much in its early stages in terms of actually producing products that are truly accessible. And there, there's been a lot of work around that just in the past year that's come out to show how inaccessible some of these products. I think it's going to end up being more stick than carrot with, with dark patterns, to be honest. It is going to require some of this regulation to say, no, you just actually can't do something. And this will allow uh, the interest of designers within organizations to actually then have something to fight back with. Instead of just, I don't think that this is a good product decision, we actually can't do this because we're violating law. I think that ends up becoming a much more useful uh, bargain for designers and product managers and copywriters alike to actually um, argue for, for better uh, decisions to be made. The reason why I said I'm, maybe a little, I'm coming at this a little bit cynically is that it isn't in a company. It looks altruistic to engage with accessibility. And that's, of course, not the reason we should be engaging with accessible product. I think it's, it's what consumers deserve and what humans deserve. But from a product decision, from, from a company perspective, it looks good to care about a broader set of uh, people and kinds of use characteristics than you might otherwise. It isn't in this, the company's best interest to care about interests other than their own, though, as it relates to manipulation, because you actually see a marked uh, decline in potential profits. And in fact, even some of the legal scholarship that has come out around dark patterns in the last couple of years, there's a study that came out from a law scholar at University of Chicago Law School, where they showed that you know subscription rates decline pretty substantially as soon as you take away some of these dark patterns. And so I don't see many companies being willing to make that value trade-off between money and consumer benefit. I agree with you, but it's such a gray area. Like, I feel like the legal departments are like light years behind what's happening right now in the world. And let me give you an example. So there is this, I'm doing this personal research myself. I'm playing this, um, it's called like hyper casual gaming. So I'm, I'm playing this game right now. I wouldn't mention your name, his name. It's like, it, it, it's just like, I don't know, just 
blocks that bomb each other and so on. And it's tried to monetize you all the time. And if like you don't have you run out of life, so you see this like illustration of a jellyfish that is really, really sad about the fact that you can't play anymore. And then you press try again and then say, oh, you want to try again? How about paying like 10 bucks and then you could have like five more lives? So this is pretty dark. It's pretty manipulative. And how, how can you like specifically tap that specific use case in legal? It seems impossible even. It is. No, and it is very challenging. So I have an ongoing collaboration with um, some EU legal scholars. That, that Kai paper that I mentioned came out of. And this is one of the challenges because law and regulation has to be highly specific and it has to show harm as well. And so linking up and connecting all those dots is very challenging. And as we've seen in the last decade, dark patterns are shapeshifters. They uh, they shift form, they shift in strategy, they shift in the way that they're deployed. And so, you know, maybe confirmed shaming won't work as well, but something else will take it. And so I think one of the big interests in the regulatory community at this point is actually finding classifications of strategies that adversely impact people that we already agree should be protected. I mean, so this is why I made reference to, to children and the elderly earlier. You know, there's broad consensus that those are groups that we need to care for. And so if we can show that a, a, the least sophisticated user, which apparently is a legal term, uh, can't do something or gets harmed adversely by, by uh, certain kinds of design strategies, then I think that that could lead to a regulatory. And in particular, you know, I, I'm trying to get a product project kickstarted with a scholar out at University of Washington, Alexis Hineker, who's done some work on dark patterns and attention and with um, apps oriented towards children. And this is, I think, an area where a lot of change could happen that could then filter down to many other use contexts beyond apps for children. But I think the more that we studied the attention economy, the ways that dark patterns likely, you know, push evolutionary buttons and could, you know, change cognitive development for children, that could be a very interesting way into to sort of thinking about regulation of dark patterns more broadly. But I agree, it's difficult. All right. And okay, once we will see some, so as I see here, we have two futures here, two possible futures. One that is dark for humankind, one that is bright. Dark means companies get away with it, they can do whatever they want, they have these algorithms that keeping manipulate you, you're getting hooked, you're going to lose all of your data, their business model is that your eyes will be on, this, on your cell phone for 24-7, they don't care as long as they get profit out of it. That's dark. Bright is that we're going to see some regulations and companies wouldn't be able to do it anymore. I saw something that really made me happy with some, something that happened not because of regulation, but because of like a business decision that Apple was doing when they just decided to say, no, you can't track any more apps that are on our iOS devices, which was a really cool business move. So how, how do you see the future here? Are, are we having a bright future or a dark future? I, I don't know, to be honest. Yeah. So, I mean, this is a challenging question and, you know, the answer is probably going to lie somewhere in between. Right. But I think that we can look at some positive cases that have sort of emerged over the last few years. I think some of the moves that Apple has taken while they've been quite aggressive have been the kinds of choices that could shape these futures in a more equitable, more positive direction that give consumers more control and make privacy, you know, off by default 
much more common. It's going to take a while for even some of those privacy and data protection kinds of decisions to sort of play out, though, in terms of impact. I think there's real concern right now that that could also lead to, to, to legal and monopolistic concerns in relation to how that market power is being used. But I would like to see market power being used for good in relation to dark patterns. I would like the fact that people are explicitly not using dark patterns to become a, a way of sort of framing market value rather than taking all data at all costs, which is, I think, the default um, business model right now within sort of surveillance capitalism. And so I think this is, a, this is a real, we're at a tipping point, and it's a challenging tipping point to really figure out what kinds of business models should be legal and which ones should be illegal, how consumer data sort of plays out in that space, and to what degree consumers have a choice in sort of playing out these features. I don't think if we put the choice in consumers' hands only that it's going to lead in a positive direction because we've seen this privacy paradox. Again, I think it plays out in dark patterns as well. We use lots of things that we know aren't good for us, just like we eat things that we know aren't good for us. So it is going to require forces both at the individual sort of accountability level, but also these larger structures that actually form these false choice scenarios in the first place uh, for people to really, truly have a better, I think, more ethically aware engagement with technology, but also to have real decisions that they can make as well. I mean, it's a slippery slope. Like there are some devices and technologies that are more addictive than drugs. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, I think this is where the, you know, the fields of, when we look at brain science and the ways that that's starting to merge with uh, design disciplines, I see this as an opportunity, but I also see this as a potential threat because the more that we know about the ways that we can addict people and manipulate them and coerce them, it isn't just a, this is harmful. It's also becomes a for how you can actually do this really evil stuff even better. And we saw this transition in the late nineties, early two thousands from, you know, these strategies from fog that were intended to help people do better things from this behavioral economics perspective. And in fact, those ended up becoming the playbook for modern dark patterns as we've sort of seen them in digital tech. And so there's always this dual worry of the more that we understand about the human body and how humans engage with technology, there are two paths. There is a more equitable, more just path, and there is a path where we can actually use those behaviors to get even more profit off of the backs of consumers. And right now we're seeing things swing way more in that direction than the former. It's uh, some crazy stuff. I think what brought a lot of attention lately to the to the idea of ethical design is that uh, movie on Netflix, uh, the social dilemma. I believe mean. like, yes. that's where yeah. I, I first saw like people, like the average Joe's James, talking mm-hmm. about like the fact that there are many many dangers in technology. Yes, and I wonder how. how- yeah, and I think for I think for many consumers, that was the first time they realized at some more substantial level that, in fact, they're being played. We know from a survey study that we deployed a couple of years ago in a Chinese and and Western context that there is a broad awareness. I think we found like 80% of consumers are aware that they're being manipulated, but I don't think that most people are aware the degree to which the manipulation is customized to them based off of their data footprint. And that's very difficult to unravel. I study these things. And even so, you know, when a Website asks me to consent to give my data. I say yes, because I want access to the content. Right. You know, when you're forced to make these decisions in the moment, you often don't make the decision that's in your best interest. So I have to say, yeah, let me know what you think about it. So in Israel, we have something called vegan friendly. I don't know if uh, it's something that is known worldwide, but basically it's like a stamp 
I like this labeling idea in theory. I think in practice, it has a lot of complexities. I think, you know, labeling schemes like what you've described could certainly help with some of the more easily identifiable dark, often dark patterns that are deployed at a strategy level, for instance. So, you know, like the the model where you can sign up for something really easily, but you have to call a phone number and convince somebody to actually discontinue a service. Like that's really easy to identify as like a very harmful coercive practice. But when is confirmed shaming just some light fun? And when does it actually go dark? That those differences become much more difficult. And some of the most problematic dark patterns are actually ones that are experienced temporarily, that are experienced over time through multiple interactions, either in one session or multiple sessions on a, on a digital product. And those are very difficult to capture. They're very difficult to evaluate, and they might be experienced very differently by different people with different kinds of cognitive biases at, with different levels of cognitive development. So in principle, I love the idea. Yeah, in, in principle, I love the idea. I think the labeling schemes would probably be most effective when coupled with another framework, whether it be a regulatory framework or a developmental framework. So taking labeling to kids apps, for instance, and saying, you know, we're actually assessing to make sure there's no cognitive development harm being done in relation to these principles that then overlap with these dark patterns strategies. That's where I think you could start to have some real labeling success. Like, uh, so um, frequency of uh, what you just said. So basically, um, building, for example, a good scheme that I have an idea. Okay, so my companies want to unsubscribe from their service. It's like they hide it when you want to see your membership. So they hide it. So this could be a really good labeling. Like, okay, so if you want to unsubscribe from this company, they make it easy for you. They don't make it challenging for you. So that could be one. And then, like you could have, you could identify, like from a designer point of view. You're a designer. I'm a designer. By the way, also mean by background. If you could build like a team of like highly trained designers that could, you know, take those apps and and identify those weak points and then label them. And you're saying that you need to do it in like kids apps first. This is what you said, or or I missed something. So it, it is very possible for, for designers to be trained to identify these dark pattern strategies. I think the challenge is that they, these patterns are experienced differently by different people, and there are varying levels of harm or potential poor social impact. And so, you know, certainly we can identify strategies like the, the unsubscription issue as especially problematic, really easy to identify. It's actually hasn't been banned though. When you look at some of these more malicious strategies though, as they're actually adopted or, or, or adapted in, the, in these digital products, it's not always as easy to define like here's a clear cut yes or no. Can you give me an example of one of those more deep strategic dark patterns if you have one uh, that you can think about? Yeah, so I mean, one of the patterns that we engaged with under our strategy of interface interference is toying with emotion. Well, when you think about building a brand, when do you go from a brand having a personality to a brand toying with emotion so that it's manipulating you? It's a very difficult line to sort of assess. It's a very personally felt line as well. And so I think confirm shaming here is a really good example because confirm shaming in its best sense, and there are some very fun, lighthearted examples that you can find, are like well-done expressions of a brand that are playful, that are fun. But it's very difficult to, I think, assess when does that language become so compelling that it becomes 
overtly. And this is, I think that challenge that I, and this weird relationship that I still have with the ad industry, because I, you know, I, I trained in visual design. I, I was around a lot of those people for undergrad and master's work. And, you know, the goal is to sell. The goal is to produce profit. And so within a capitalist sort of frame, it's very difficult to motivate yourself to give the consumer choice because your job is to sell product. And so finding when are you actually taking agency and autonomy away from the user, that I think has to be part of the conversation. But it is it is often more nuanced than this strategy is being deployed, yes or or no. To people that want to learn more about this field, do you have any, like, uh, except from your, um, can you give me the name of your last uh, published article that won the award in May? Yeah, so if you go to darkpatterns.uxp2.com, that's our lab site that's specifically focused on the Dark Patterns project. There's a list okay. of publications that's available there. That would be a great place to start. There's also a collection of examples that we built our 2018 paper off of. And you can actually go through some of those examples and see some of the different kinds of strategies that are, are, were deployed in different contexts. So I think that, that would be a really useful starting point. And uh, we have some work more broadly about sort of ethical awareness and ethical engagement that might be of interest to some of your viewers as well. Amazing. And except for that, do you know any like maybe weekly newsletters or other blogs that you personally like to read uh, or maybe more like academic stuff for people that want to get like a bit more deep into this rabbit hole? I don't know if there are any specific weekly newsletters or anything like that. I would just say that there are more and more resources out there than there ever have been to engage in, in ethical tech. We did actually did a meta-analysis of methods to support ethical decision-making uh, that's available in preprint right now. And so even that collection of methods is a starting point to become more engaged, yeah. I think points to lots of different kinds of resources that are, that are out there right now. One of the other things that I would sort of point to is also some of the, I think, consumer interest in some of these practices. Uh, so we actually pu have published some work um, on a subreddit that's called Asshole Design. It's a little bit sardonic, oh, yeah, it's a little it. bit dark, but it's also, I think, a great space to sort of become sensitive towards some really problematic design practices and to reflect on um, your own design practices uh, through that lens. You know, you win people's heart with memes sometimes. You need to do that. Memes and like yeah, funny examples and stuff like that. We're also doing it in our Instagram. Just like we found it way more engaging just to show funny examples, just to convey an idea. So asphalt design subreddit it sounds like a, a good place to start. Then Indeed. if you want to dive deep, definitely check out like all of those fantastic resources that uh, Colin is producing. I've seen your, your article quoted in so many places when I did my research. So uh, it's, it was really honored to talk to you today about this topic. We have this trick when, and I don't want to put you on the spot here. I know that I, I haven't prepared you, but uh, we, we're talking with our guests about how do you think we should like name this episode? So we're doing some kind of a brainstorming session together where we're kind of thinking together about the name. It's, it doesn't have to be too complicated. It can be very simple. Uh, do you have any idea maybe how do you think we should name this episode just to make it uh, more engaging for people <laughs> to click and listen? I don't know if I have any specific suggestions. I mean, probably including the words dark patterns in there would, would go a long way. I but think I think, so, okay. you know, our, our conversation was really revolving around, you know, this ethical responsibility that practitioners have in relation to these strategies and how, and how you sort of manage that intersection. So how about the ethical responsibility of writers in tech or something like that? Yeah, that sounds great.
Nice. All right. Uh, Colin, thank you so much for being here today. If people want to find you, ask you a question, reach out to you, what, what would be the best place? So you can uh, look at our contact information through the Dark Patterns website that I already mentioned. Uh, my professional website is colingray.me, and uh, you can get in contact with me that way as well. That's awesome. All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Writers in Tech. My name is Yuval. I'm the founder of the Exciting Hub. And that's about it. Check our website if you want to learn more about uh, product writing, UX writing, content design, and also ethical design as well. Thank you very much, Colin, for being here today, and see you on our next episode. Bye. Once again.